Well, it has been a tremendous joy to be with you this weekend. I, uh, this is a foretaste of heaven. Just walking around the grounds and listening to the children playing and laughing and uh, experiencing the beauty of nature, the beautiful trees and the mountains, and now this morning blessed with this sunshine. But it has also been amazingly sweet and comfortable and blessed just to experience your response to the Word of God. You are a people who have soaked up the Word and you are obviously immersed in the Word and you obviously worship God as a matter of habit and when you hear the Word you receive it gladly and uh, it's just a real privilege to be able to to speak to you. This, um, this week, and, and children in, in the service uh, is a sign of life too. This is a sign of, of, of blessing on the people. This has been one message all weekend, basically. And we come to the climax today. Uh, in a sense, yesterday what we said was not totally complete, and today it will be as complete as it can be until that day when we see face to face. If you have your Bible, would you turn to Job chapter 42 and then to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at Job first. We're going to read some verses from Job 42 and then we're going to read some verses from Acts chapter 2. It's going to be Acts chapter 2 beginning at verse Uh, 14, so you can put your finger there, and Job 42, verses 1 to 3. Job 42, of course, is the final chapter of the book of Job, and this is uh, Job's final speech. It's Job's confession, and it's our confession. Job chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear But now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then over to Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. 
The, heaven, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You will make known to me the paths of life. You will make full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. I just want to direct your attention back to verse 22 and 23. Verse 23 in, in particular. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up. So yesterday we saw two things. We learned two things. We studied Psalm 104. And we learned in Psalm 104 that God is in control of nature. The key verse, verse 24, is that God, is the, the psalmist is amazed at the works of God that he sees in nature. And God is the one who has not only made all the creatures, but he sustains them and upholds them in existence day by day. And secondly, we've studied Psalm 105 and we learned that God is not only in control of nature, he's in control of history. And that uh, as Joseph says, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So the very same thing that happened to Joseph, his kidnapping and being sold into slavery, that very thing was meant by evil for, by his brothers, and when it happened to Joseph, he experienced it as evil, and yet it also was in the will of God, and unbeknownst to Joseph, it was the providential way that God sought to save his people of, of Israel. Well, the doctrine of providence, as I said yesterday, is not very widely preached today, and it's not a doctrine that comes to the forefront uh, in the minds of most Christians. And that is because of, I said it was because of the Darwin myth that, uh, of evolution that has become to dominate the worldview of modern Western people. 
and that it has separated God from nature and given us a mechanistic account of nature by where the world is self-sufficient and autonomous and it, and, it, and it just operates and moves itself and God is remote and not involved. And in the context of this worldview, in the context of this way of looking at the world, the problem of evil becomes acute. If God is the transcendent creator and sovereign Lord of history, how can it be that the innocent suffers while the evildoer gets away with evil? This, of course, is the topic of the book of Job. Job is one of the most profound books of the Bible. We don't know who wrote it or when. We know that it is set in the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and many of the details of the book fit that ancient time period. And so it is very likely an old, old story that was put into its current form at a, at a much later date in Israel's history. What we do know for sure is that Job became an important book after 586 BC, as Israel wrestled with the disaster of the exile. After the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the end of the Davidic monarchy, the surviving Jews were in shock and confusion. How could God allow such a disaster? Now, the prophets had warned about the coming disaster because of Israel's failure to keep the covenant and worship Yahweh exclusively. That was true enough. But in punishing sin, which many people would say was just and right of God to do, but in punishing sin, it appeared to them that Yahweh had gone too far, that he had gone so far as to abolish the covenant that he had made with Abraham and renewed with David. And so God punishing sin is one thing. But God giving up on his promise to bring blessing to the whole world through the descendants of Abraham and having a son of David sit on David's throne forever is an entirely different thing. It appeared to many that evil and sin had triumphed over God. Even though God had set in, plan emotion, set in motion a plan of redemption, the stubbornness of God's people in refusing to obey the law and the power of the pagan empires uh, to, to triumph over Israel had led to this, what appeared to be the utter failure of the plan of redemption. And out of this situation developed the hope of a future Messiah. And that hope grew and expanded in the hearts and minds of, of faithful Israelites. But still it hurt. It hurt for people to know that even faithful, believing fellow Israelites had perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. History seemed to contain so much bloodshed, so much evil. And so the story of Job became very important to people at this time. Job was not guilty of worshiping idols. If you read the book of Job, you find that Job did not sin against God's law as he knew it, the natural law that he knew, and the oral tradition that had probably been handed down from Adam and Eve through the line of Seth. As far as he knew of God, Job was a faithful, believing follower of God. He was innocent. And even if he was like all humans in the line of Adam, a sinner on certain points, the story goes out of its way to emphasize 
that the punishment for whatever unintentional sins Job may have committed was way out of proportion to this, to the, it, it, was, it was too much for what he had done. And so Job becomes the paradigm of the innocent sufferer, the person who gets caught up in the evil of history in the midst of God's working out the plan of redemption. Like the faithful Jews who perished alongside the idolaters in the destruction of Israel, of Jerusalem, Job was an individual who suffered in ways that he did not deserve. Even if he was not perfect, he did not deserve to be singled out to lose his property, his family, and even his health. And so the problem of evil is a problem on two levels, on the macro level and on the micro level. So on the macro level, you can look at history and nations. If you do, then you can see that the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem is one major example of the problem, but there have been many. In our, our age, our day, the Holocaust of the mid-20th century is an example of a horrible set of events that have caused people to ask, where is God? Where is God in history when things like this are permitted to happen? But you can also take the problem of evil down to the micro level, to the level of the individual as well. Where is God in my life when my child dies? Where is God when my son is killed in a foreign war? When a young mother is diagnosed with cancer? When my husband walks out on me? There are millions of examples. And if you have never experienced unjust suffering, it just means you haven't lived long enough yet. Because all of us wrestle with this sooner or later. Now, of course, it should be noted that frequently we suffer due to our own stupidity. We suffer due to our own disobedience. We suffer because we do things that are wrong. We're stubborn. We're sons and daughters of Adam. We have a fallen nature. and We often deserve what we get. But not all the time. Not always. Sometimes there is such a thing in the world as innocent suffering. And it's very real. And many people in this room know from personal experience of what, I, of what I speak. And so here's the problem. If it is really true that God is in control of nature and, and historical events such that nothing can happen unless he allows it to happen, then is God guilty of evil? This problem is tied up with, but even more important than, the problem of innocent suffering. Because if, 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 if we have the problem of innocent suffering, but we know we still have a God who is good and all-powerful, at least we can hope for relief from the suffering. But if we begin to question the goodness of God or the omnipotence of God, then there is no hope in our suffering. So how do we reconcile our belief in a good and omnipotent God with the, with the existence of innocent suffering in this world. Job 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job never gets an answer to his question. He never gets a solution. You know that Job is structured as a frame tale. There's a prologue and an epilogue. And in the prologue, Satan comes before God and God brags on Job. And Satan says, ah, he just worships you because of what he gets out, gets out of it. And God gives Job, Satan permission to afflict Job, but with boundaries. And then the, the affliction comes. But Job knows nothing of this. He knows nothing of what's going on between God and Satan. He has no idea why these things are happening to him. And here's the thing. In the whole book of 42 chapters, he never finds out. Never. What he comes to understand and what he says in these verses is that it's, it's not appropriate that he would understand all the ways of God because God of the creature-creator distinction, of the infinite difference between God and man. The fact that Job can't understand is itself understandable. That's what Job comes to. He has to eventually believe by faith that God is good and omnipotent, even when he has no answers. The sheer godness of God is something we easily lose sight of. This is the fundamental truth that, that is, it shapes and drives all Christian doctrine. We can so easily fall into the trap of thinking of God as if God was another creature along with us in the universe. But he's not just another character in the play. He's more like Shakespeare writing the play. And even that analogy falls short, but at least it depicts the fact that there are two different levels of reality, one on which God operates and another on which we operate. And we can no more understand God than Hamlet and Horatio can understand Shakespeare. As God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And Job says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. In other words, it's, it's futile to argue with God. It's futile to blame God because you never have all the facts that you need. I haven't been the parent of young children for a long time, but I have been the grandparent. And I know that when... One of the grandchildren comes and says, accuses the other of a crime. That it's easy to be sympathetic, especially if the accuser is the younger and the accused is the older. It's easy to take the side of the younger and, and immediately assume that you, that's the one who should get your sympathy. But even on that level, you have to remember that you shouldn't pass judgment without knowing all the facts. And sometimes there are extenuating circumstances. Sometimes there are, part, there are parts of the story that conveniently get left out. And you just can't know exactly how to... Re if this is true on the human level, how much more is it true on the divine level? Because in principle, at least I could investigate enough and find out who hit who first and who took whose thing first. I could at least establish those facts. 
But what Job is wrestling with is the fact that no matter what we do, no matter how wise we are, we humans never have all the facts. We never know what God knows. So there's a backstory in Job's situation that Job never learns. When we go forward into the New Testament to Peter, we find that there is, uh, a, Peter is given access to a little bit more of the backstory. The speaker here is Peter, and he is um, preaching the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. He's explaining to the crowds the meaning of the miraculous events of the tongues of fire and the people speaking all different languages they didn't know and the mighty rushing wind. And the people are amazed, we're told in 2.7, to hear these Galileans speaking in all the various native languages of the many visitors to Jerusalem from all over the world. It's a, it's a feast in Jerusalem and the population has doubled and Jews from many countries are there. And so Peter stands up and he addresses them as spokesman for the apostles. And it's interesting to note that Peter was involved in a crucial dialogue with Jesus just a few months prior to this. It started with Jesus asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns on them and says, but who do you say that I am? And we can just imagine a pregnant silence before Peter. Yes, it has to be Peter. Of course, it's Peter who speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus essentially says, right, correct answer. But you're not to tell anybody. And then he began to explain to them what being the Messiah involved. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And at this point, Peter couldn't stand it anymore. He took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus saying that he, for, for saying that he must suffer and die. He, and Peter said, no, you don't, you don't understand. Uh, God, let me explain it to you. Um, you can't suffer and die. And Peter's word, Jesus' words to Peter are shocking. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. So now this same Peter who had this conversation with Jesus, who had opposed Jesus' teaching that he must die and rise again months earlier, is now standing in front of a large crowd in Jerusalem proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he is asserting that it happened by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was no accident of history. It was not the power of Satan triumphing over the power of God. It was not unforeseen or unexpected. How did Peter know this? He knew it because Jesus predicted it before it happened. Unlike in the case of Job, there, the curtains were, were pulled, back, was pulled back just a little ways for Peter. He, he couldn't see everything, but he saw a lot more than Job saw, and he he began to understand that this was part of God's plan. Poor Job had to take God at his word and just have faith. But Peter was an eyewitness of the coming of the Messiah. 
He listened to his teachings. He saw his miracles. He was informed of what was destined to occur before it happened. Peter was transformed then by the events of the cross and the empty tomb from being a doubter and to a believer, from being a skeptic to a man of faith, and from being a coward to being a fearless preacher of the gospel. And so he utters a truth that is so incredibly deep in its mystery that no one can possibly grasp it comprehensively. He says these words, he says that basically that this was happened by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that the worst thing in history was God's plan. The mystery of divine providence is seen in the fact that the worst thing in the history of the world turned into the best thing in the history of the world. We don't really understand divine providence until we understand the cross and the resurrection. And there is no answer to the problem of evil apart from the cross and the resurrection. I'm sorry if you thought that I was going to invent some ingenious philosophical solution to the puzzle. I'm sorry to let you down, but there is no such ingenious philosophical solution to that puzzle. Apart from the cross, apart from the plan of God in history, there is no solution to the problem of evil. The mystery of divine providence is seen in the fact that the worst thing in the history of the world turned into the best thing that ever happened in the history of the world. And so in considering this verse, I want to meditate with you for a minute on the paradox of the cross, the prefiguring of the cross, and the power of the cross. Actually, I left out something. Because there is a little bit more to the story. And it's more than Job understood and it's more than Peter even fully grasped. But we see it as we look at the grand sweep of scripture. We understand that this world is a battleground. There were two falls. There was the fall of the angels and then the fall of man. And the fall of the angels led to Satan becoming the enemy, the implacable enemy of God. And so Peter warns us to watch out for Satan, your adversary. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced. Notice how he links the work of Satan to the suffering that we experience as Christians, experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's basically elaborating on, on what Peter says in Acts 2. John Milton, the great English poet, in his work, Paradise Lost, in, in book one, he describes Satan rallying his troops after having been expelled from heaven. After the war that he launched against the sovereignty of God in heaven, he's cast out of heaven down to the earth, and he's making a speech and he's rallying the troops. And notice what Milton has Satan say. If then his providence, out of our evil, seek to bring forth good. Our labor must be to pervert that end, and out of good still to find means of evil. 
See, this is what Job did not know, that history is characterized by Satan working to bring evil out of good and God working to bring evil out of good, good out of evil, and that this the history is a battleground between spiritual forces and we get caught up in that battle. And so the... So Job never learned the reason. Peter had the privilege of knowing in advance that Jesus would die and rise again. But it's only on this side of the cross that we can see how decisively the battle has been won. So let's think about the the cross for a moment. First, let's think about the paradox of the cross. Now remember, a paradox is an apparent contradiction, not a real contradiction. A real contradiction is that uh, the law of non-contradiction says that A cannot be A and non-A in the same way at the same time. A paradox is where it appears that A is A A and non-A, the case is A and non-A at the same time, but it might not be in the same way or it might not be at the same time. And so a paradox is an apparent contradiction. You might be tricked into thinking it's a contradiction at first, but if you think about it clearly, it's not a contradiction. So the cross is a paradox. It's paradoxical in that God reveals his love to humanity in the very act by which human beings reject, scorn, and crucify him. It's paradoxical in that the worst thing ever to happen in history turns out to be the means by which the world is saved. When we hit rock bottom, when we as human beings show no loveliness whatsoever, There we see the love of God written in red. How can an act of cruel injustice justify the ungodly? How can man's hate be the channel for God's love? How can the rejection of Israel's Messiah by both the majority of Israel and the Roman Empire result in blessing flowing out to the nations? How can it be that the moment when the devil apparently won was actually the precise moment when his doom was sealed? It's no wonder that Paul, reflecting on the gospel that he preached, wrote, Hmm. Um, It's no wonder that Paul wrote, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's a quote from Isaiah 29, 14. Where then is the one who is wise? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So this is not saying that there is no such thing as wisdom, and it's not saying that we shouldn't seek wisdom, but it is saying that in this problem of evil, we have to go beyond human wisdom, and we have to have the revelation of God on the cross in order to understand If you reject the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you reject true wisdom. Secondly, we must consider not only the paradox of the cross, but the prefiguring of the cross. And here, we could go on for hours about the prefiguring of the cross in the Old Testament. But we just mentioned Genesis 3.15, where it says that the first messianic prophecy in Scripture in the very context of the dialogue that God has with Adam and Eve uh, after the fall. 
And he says, I will put enmity between, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so all through Genesis and Exodus, from the Passover lamb of Exodus to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, to the messianic king of the Psalms, the scripture portray, proclaims over and over and over that history is leading in a certain direction. History is moving in a certain direction. It's, it's leading to the cross. It's moving toward the cross. The whole Old Testament prepares for the cross and points to the cross and prefigures the cross. And so after the resurrection, when Jesus appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and he says to them, you notice how what he says, he says, oh foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He blames them for not seeing Christ in the Old Testament. He blames them for not understanding that the, the Messiah had to die and rise again. Because it's all there in the Old Testament. It's predicted. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He undoubtedly began with Genesis 3.15 and went through Genesis 22 and Deuteronomy 18, many of the Psalms, Isaiah 53 and other passages. The seed of the woman narrows to the family of Abraham in Genesis 12 and the descendant of David in 2 Samuel 7. Even Israel's death and resurrection in the exile and return prefigures the Messiah. In the providence of God, history unfolds according to God's incredible plan. But we must consider not only the paradox of the cross and the prefiguring of the cross, but also the power of the cross. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Augustine compares, compares Christ's cross to a throne from which he exerts rule over all creation. The cross is the moment of triumph for Christ when he accomplishes the will of God in the redemption of the world and it is the moment of defeat for the devil. The cross was so unexpected that it took the devil by surprise. He imagined for a moment that he had won. But he soon realized he had made a terrible mistake. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the wisdom of the cross was a secret and hidden wisdom that God decreed before the ages for our glory. And then he writes, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would, have not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so this is why we, we, we must say two things and hold them in tension. On the one hand, that the Old Testament does speak of Christ. On the other hand, that is spiritually discerned. It's not plainly stated, it's spiritually discerned. Satan read the Old Testament, but he made a mistake in his exegesis. He didn't understand it. Because you only understand it with the aid of the Spirit. And Paul says, now we Spirit-filled readers see the truth that was there all along. And this is the wisdom and the power of God. Who could have cooked up a scheme like this but God? The power of the cross is in its power to change lives. In the cross there is forgiveness of sin. There is healing of the mind. There is comfort to the dying. There is hope of eternal life. The cross is the center of history and its power radiates out in all directions. 
The Old Testament believers in the great hall of faith in Hebrews were saved by looking forward to the cross. And we look back to the cross and the cross is the center. And from the cross emanates salvation and grace and glory for all the nations. The power of the cross is able to save sinners, defeat evil and make all things new. And all this is possible because of something that seemed like defeat. The power of God is displayed in the worst act of evil ever perpetrated. God basically says, go ahead, give me your best shot. Take your best shot, Satan. Do your worst. And it turns out to be salvation. Isn't that amazing? Resurrection power means that the day of judgment is coming. This world is not, this life is not all there is. There will be a day when we will all stand before God. And all the wrongs will be righted. And all the sin will be punished. Yes, it's true that sometimes the evildoers, they live a long life. They never experience any, any bad results of their sin. They, they die in their bed surrounded by their family at, at an advanced age. And good people who are trying to serve God, who love God, who believe in the gospel by faith, are cut off young and their children are deprived of a, of a mother or a father. We know these things happen. But because of the resurrection of the dead, because of the day of judgment, because there is an eternal life in heaven, these things will be corrected. These, all judgment will be done properly. All the rights will be wrong, will be, all the wrongs will be made right. All of the brokenness will be healed. On that day, the day after the day of judgment, when, when the new heavens and new earth are brought into being, little faith will run and cry, with joy with the other children. That's the Christian faith. That's what we believe. That's why we never give up. That's why the cross is so precious. That's the solution to the problem of evil. Evil is real, but it's not forever. Evil is real, but it doesn't win. Evil is real, but there's another day coming when Christ will reign and the devil will be banished and the new heavens and the new earth will be made perfect and everything that is good here will be there and more that we can't even imagine. As we meditate on the cross, we learn three things. Three things. Not only can God bring good out of evil, he already has. The fact that we're here that we're worshiping God, that we're, we're, we're born again, we're regenerated, we're saved. He's already brought good out of evil. He's already done miracles as a result of the cross. Not only can he bring good out of evil, Christian faith says he already has. He started doing, and what he has started doing now, he's going to keep on doing until everything is made right. And secondly, trusting in divine providence turns out to be the same thing as trusting in God for salvation. Trusting in divine providence is nothing other than trusting in the, the atoning death of Christ for our salvation. You want to know what is the answer to the problem of evil? It's the cross. What is the solution? Trusting in the cross. Trusting in what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do. Because what God has started in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that is a, a force has been unleashed 
that will never be stopped, it can never be stopped, until it rules out and affects all of God's people and every one of the elect is with God, praising God in heaven eternally. That's already underway. It's already begun. And you're caught up in it. Praise God for that. Let's, let's meditate more on the cross. There's nothing else. <laughs>